Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to Crime World. Over Christmas, we're reposting some earlier episodes we made throughout the year. There's a lot of, most art is stolen from people's homes. And it's the sorts of things you wouldn't recognize the art or the artist. But it's valuable. We're talking about paintings worth many millions of dollars. It was unfathomable that a woman would have led this sort of thing. This was not a flight of fancy for some rich girl. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Today, I'm talking to art detective Anthony Amore, who is the director of security at the Isabella Stuart Gardner Museum in Boston, where he's charged with recovering 13 masterpieces stolen by a gang in 1990. He has followed leads all over the world, including those which have led him to Ireland, chasing those paintings which he believes will one day be recovered. Art thieves fascinate him, but none more so than the one-time heiress Rose Dugdale, who gave up a charmed life of extreme wealth to become an IRA activist. She led the first heist at Rusborough House in Wicklow, which was later targeted by the general, Martin Cahill. And Anthony says she inspired the criminal mastermind and his gang. In his book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, Anthony follows Dugdale's story from her idyllic childhood in England to a housing estate in Drimna in Dublin, where she's ended up after a fascinating life of crime and activism. He also tells me what he thinks about another famous criminal. Martin the Viper Foley and his tall tales. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Anthony, I have to say, I get the impression that uh, you quite like Rose Dugdale. You know, uh, people say that to me after they read the book and... um... It's hard, it's hard not to like her, and I would say that um, I abhor her crimes, especially since I've spent 
15 years of my life looking, uh, protecting art at a museum that was robbed before. Um, and also, I think the bombing that she attempted at Straban would have been horrific if it was successful. But I do admire, I have a grudging admiration for her dedication and her fervor for her cause. And her cause, of course, was Irish freedom, um, which wasn't something that she was born into at all. Rose Dugdale is a very, very, very interesting character. Um, she came from incredible wealth and was educated privately in the UK at a time when only the the, the landed gentry really could afford such things. Um, tell us a little bit about her background and uh, her her very interesting arrival into adult life before the Queen. Well, you know that's that. Uh, is what makes her really interesting to me is that she was what people now would refer to as the one percent, you know. And in interviews later in her life, she tries to downplay that a bit, but there's no question she was an aristocrat, that she was born into extreme wealth uh, on Yardy Farm in Devon, um, with just rolling hills and horseback riding and every luxury a person could ever ask for in youth. She went to Miss Ironside's um, private school with uh, women of her class, um, all of them uh, equal footing with her in terms of wealth. And uh, those are the people she associated with and had every luxury. But even though she tries to downplay that slightly, um, that's what kind of makes her more fascinating. So ultimately, as a girl of her upbringing would, the parents expected her to uh, be a debutante, be presented to the queen. It was, you know, an honor for the parents. Um, and it was more of an honor and expectation because her year, which was 1958, would have been the last year. The queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, had announced that this would be the last class of debutantes presented before the queen. So you can't think of a greater... Uh, exclusive group than the last group to be presented um, before the Queen. So in order to be presented, you had to dress from head to toe in white. And, um, you know, was there many of them? Was there hundreds of them every year or just a, a smaller number? Uh, uh, they were, they literally had to to go and dance, I think, and curtsy before the Queen, before they made their way on to find a man. That's, it's really interesting because it's much more complicated and involved than I thought it was. So, yes, you're right about how they had to dress. They had to curtsy, but just not, not just curtsy, but be trained to curtsy by a specific trainer who was a ballet teacher who would teach uh, prospective debutantes exactly how the proper curtsy was uh, for those presented to the queen. And it was a, a long affair. It wasn't just this one spectacular night. And to your question, there were dozens of, of them, but all very exclusive families. And um, uh, th- it was this lo- long um, affair in which the young women who would be presented were paired with men, um, many of them in the military, but of fine upbringing um, officers in the military that they were sort of thought of to be uh, married off to. Uh, you and I discussed before that there were these lists that the mothers would share about um, men who were not safe in taxis and such. And uh, 
so it so it was complicated. It was really something Rose was not interested in at all, and only did it as part of a wager, not a wager, but a bargain with her parents. So um, it was a, a compromise that she made. I think I actually would have done it purely for that list of men that are not safe in taxis. <laughs> we could absolutely all have done with that at some stage in life. Um, from there, Rose begins to travel. I think she went to Cuba and she took a particular interest in Ireland. She's a tomboy and a rebel, really, during her, you know, her, her early life. And when she kind of, she has her education, she goes out into the world and she really embraces this anti-capitalism feel that is around at that time. Yeah, it's a good point. So in between being a debutante, the, the, the trade she made with her parents in order to accept being a debutante was that she would uh, be allowed to attend Oxford, which is really a strange thing. And in 2020, to think that you would have to you know, uh, trade with your daughter to allow her to go to Oxford as if that was some concession seems really foreign, but that was the case at the time for a young woman who wanted to study um, instead of just being married off. And she didn't stop at Oxford where she studied uh, philosophy, but then she came to the United States and her later, um, she, she is not a fan of the United States and the capitalist society, but it wasn't exactly true at that time because she came to America to study. She applied and was accepted to go to Mount Holyoke, which is here in Massachusetts, a woman's school, um, pretty exclusive, and even traveled the country. She took a, you know, this is not a, a, a woman of the people at the time. She had her, her sports car shipped over to the United States and she, she traveled the country in it during a break. Um, but then went on and got her master's back to England to get her PhD, um, taught students, uh, participated in sit-ins. But you're right, it's really in 1968 when she goes to Cuba um, with a bunch of students who are um, sort of looking at radicalism and looking at anti-capitalism and goes at the invite of Castro to study the revolution there and um, listen to his speeches and meet the people. And of course, Castro uh, convinced them to do some free labor for him in the fields as well, in the blazing hot sun of Cuba. She really took to it. But what the reason I, I point out the 10-year difference is because the students she went with were younger than she was. So she was a bit advanced, you know, not much older, but somewhat older. So she was in her later 20s when she was with other um, burgeoning intellectuals. For instance, I always point out that Christopher Hitchens was one of the people that was there as well, and he didn't buy into it as much. But um, she totally bought into it and loved the experience. It was probably the most formulative, formulative experience of her time. And she kind of, when she came back to England, I think she sort of saw the Irish fight then as maybe closer to home. Um, obviously, London was under attack from IRA bombers. There, there was the, 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 the famed bombings at the Old Bailey. Mm -hmm. um, and she sort of gets involved, does she not, in the Republican movement in the UK, first of all, in London, uh, and uh, starts to give away all her money. Exactly. So she, when she goes back to England, she sets up a tenants' union in Tottenham, and um, this is really interesting to me because you can see in vivid color her 
her move towards Irish republicanism. So she first starts fighting on the behalf of um, women whose husbands are in unions, but they're in jail, or people who are homeless that need an apartment, and she would get them to squat in apartments, and she would go fight for their rights. She was a feared advocate for the less fortunate. Um, civil servants would dread seeing her walk into the office. Soon she meets a guy named Wally Heaton, a um, union leader who's a rabble rouser and a revolutionary, self-described revolutionary, who is still alive, actually. He's 94 years old. He read my book and loved it, thank God, because um, he would have made it known if he didn't. But what's really interesting to me is when he starts working at the Tottenham Tenants Union with her, they set up, um, and I have photos of it, the Irish tricolor as the banner above their door. So even though they're there working for um, people in Britain, they're expressing their uh, sympathy, their um, federation with the Irish Republican cause. And to think in, in Tottenham at the time, when, as you said, there were um, IRA activities going on, mostly in Northern Ireland at the time, but still, that is a huge statement. So she was loud and proud about her um, support for the Irish cause. Wally Heaton would have been a man that you mightn't have got into a taxi with or that wouldn't have been safe in a taxi, I would have thought. He was married and a bit of a cad. Uh, I won't say too much about him because he's still alive, obviously, but um, he was, he got involved in, 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 well, in her money. He seemed to want quite a bit of her money and she was very quick to give it away. When she came to the end of uh, what she had, she then turned back to her family who she had uh, separated a lot from and she um, went with him and robbed her own family home. Her first art heist was actually in the Dugdale family mansion. Right. It's really an amazing thing. So you, you said it perfectly and I'm happy to say uh, so Walter was a revolutionary and um, a man of the people, but Rose was extremely wealthy and her family never cut her off. They gave her an enormous amount of money, but she spent it faster than, than they could give it to her. And she would give it to people in Tottenham as well, but she spent a lot on Walter. So even though he was a union leader and um, really um, working class, he, he took to driving a Mercedes with her money and wore the finest suits and she gave Walter and his wife tens of thousands of um, pounds. Interesting, because the wife obviously did not approve of this. They carried on their affair right in front of her. Um, Mrs. Heaton would come home and find them in bed together. Um, but uh, you're right. So she runs out of money because of all the spending. And she turns to, you said it very well, she turns exactly to the people who had always provided for her, her family. And one evening they go and they rob Yardy Farm. Uh, that's where she knew she could find riches. And it was an art heist. She stole um, paintings and antiques. Interestingly, she, she was not a great criminal, especially at that time, because one of the clues, there were a few clues that led to her. Number one, her bedroom was not touched in the heist. Number two, this beautiful antique gift she left for her mother was the one thing left behind that wasn't stolen. And number three, the dogs on the farm were very fond of her and none of them barked during the heist. So um, the, the authorities are onto her quickly. But even at that point, if she never did another thing, a major art heist like that 
would have made her a singular individual in the annals of art crime because no woman had ever masterminded such a such a crime before. Now you have the authority to tell us that because your job is as director of art crime an investigation is that is that the title or is it it's close the title is a director of security and chief investigator at the Godner Museum in Boston where famously a, a number of works of art priceless works of art were stolen 30 years ago and we'll we'll come on to that again but um it was a rarity art heist were a rarity by women and probably also by people who knew what they were stealing well said it, it, it dawns on me that you know crime really well. So um, you, you, your questions are better placed than most interviewers. Yes, yeah, she, she still is the only woman really to do this, even if we stopped at that heist. But the idea that she would know what to steal, um, she was better educated. The vast majority of your art thieves are more like um, uh, Martin Cahill, who was a great thief, a thief who was always stealing things, but wasn't educated on art by by any stretch. Um, and the same is true in the United States. Art thieves are not people who know art. They just know the big names. Um, so you're right. She is a rare breed in both respects. In her own home, she knew exactly what to go for and what to leave behind. Um, was she immediately suspected? Yes. Yeah, she was immediately suspected. Um her family was well aware that she would, had taken this turn and that she had taken up with criminals. It wasn't hard to, to guess that she might have been involved in this. And uh, she was caught rather quickly. Mm. I suppose if you have somebody like that who knows what they're doing, the great hope is that they might care for the paintings rather than leave them in, in damp conditions or, or, or other conditions that might damage them. Were all the works of art she stole from her own home recovered? They were all recovered, yes. Everything that was stolen in that heist was recovered. Mm. Um, and she and Walter were arrested and tried and convicted. And interestingly, um, Walter, who had a criminal record, was sentenced to six years in prison. And uh, Rose was convicted as well, but um, she was given a two-year suspended sentence and a fine and um, in a classic, one of the world's great examples of a judge misjudging a, a, uh, a convicted person, the judge said that she was unlikely to offend again, and this was a one-off. And most interestingly to me, said that she had fallen under the spell of Wally Heaton. So that's really fascinating to me because in 1974, apparently, and all the newspaper reports substantiate this, it was unfathomable that a woman would have led this sort of thing, right? So when people would analyze her crimes in years after, they would say she must have fallen under the spell of Walter Heaton and later Eddie Gallagher. But the fact is the men fell under her spell, which makes her, and I think the book, that much more interesting. Yeah, women are often, um, you know, when they do commit a crime, it is often, it's like as if it's so unpalatable to us. That, that women, you know, can, can be cruel or, you know, that, that they are often said to have been under the influence of somebody else. I mean, to this day. Um, moving on, Rose Dugdale, and this is where it becomes really interesting. She moves to Ireland and she falls in love with another man 
perhaps who is also not to be trusted in taxis, Eddie Gallagher, uh, a renegade Republican from Donegal. Um, and she has quite an amazing short space of time with him. She commits some very serious crimes and ones that will, you know, be remembered forever. So tell us about how she met Eddie and, and what, the, what they did first when she, she settled down here. Absolutely incredible. So when Walter goes to prison, she visits him for a short while. <clears throat> she professes her dedication to him. But then shortly before Christmas, which is just a couple of months, she makes her way for Ireland. But if you look at the timeline, she gets to Ireland and rather quickly takes up with Eddie Gallagher. I mean, very quickly. And um, later events when she goes to prison show you just how quickly she took up with him. And they become very active right away. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Eddie, Mad Eddie, as they call them, was a part of a renegade faction of the IRA. Two, um, ma making two rash decisions to, to really help the cause, um, essentially. No strategy behind his crimes, which made him a perfect fit for Rose. And without any sort of permission or thinking in advance, the two of them come up with a plot to, to pull off, to try to pull off a terrorist attack, um, for lack of a better term. Rose and Eddie, Rose posed as a journalist and chartered a helicopter. And then when she returned for the flight, Rose, Eddie, and two other men appeared with um, firearms and they hijacked the helicopter and forced the pilot to fly to Straban where they had these milk churns that they had packed by hand, including Rose, with explosives. They were so heavy, uh, heavily filled with explosives that two of the milk churns had to be left off the helicopter. Um, they flew over the, the, the RUC barracks and they dropped their milk churns and missed their target. Um, a couple fell off into the rocks, did not explode. Another fell into the water. And what I found really interesting is when they spoke to the RUC command there, um, the press was told that they sort of watched this with amusement, that uh, they chuckled at how futile their effort was and how amateurish it was. But the fact of the matter is that what they tried to do, if successful, would have been incredibly catastrophic and would have killed everyone in sight with the amount of explosives they had. So while the RUC was happy to tell the press that they were amused by this effort, they were not. And soon thereafter, there's wanted posters of Rose Dugdale popping up. Um, and interestingly, they, they go out of the way to, ins to, to what they think is insulting to her by describing her as having a sallow appearance and mannish, um, wearing dirty clothes, um, just uh, using a very unflattering photo of her, incorrectly thinking that would bother Rose Dugdale at all. She couldn't care less. She was a revolutionary. Her appearance was clearly the last thing on her mind. And you can see this if you compare her earlier photos with her later photos. Um, uh, so she, um, uh, it, you know, I should go back just for really one quick second and point out that when they were arrested for the home invasion, for the, the theft of those paintings, there's a great photo of Rose and Walter leaving court and Walter, um, the police station, and Walter looks depressed because he knows he's in trouble. Rose couldn't look happier. This was what she wanted for her life. And around this time when she, just before she goes to Ireland, is when the bombing of the Old Bailey occurred. 
um, where the Price sisters in, in some um, uh, of their Confederates set off four car bombs in London, bringing the fight to London. And um, this was incredibly motivational to Rose. And I pl- sometimes, not in the book, but I play pop psychologist. And I have this theory that Rose, if, if Rose could have been anyone else in the world, it would have been Dolores Price. So these two lives intersect at this point. Um, and Rose becomes convinced that one of the things she should try to do is free the Price sisters from their hunger strike and get them out of prison in England and into an institution in Northern Ireland. So as they can be nearer their family and be seen as political prisoners, was there what they wanted, what she believed she could help them with? Exactly. And that's that's really what brought her and which brings us to Rusborough House in Wicklow because they were wanted herself and Eddie Gallagher for the would-be bombings in Straban. But they went on the run and, and while on the run, they conducted the first of what was many robberies on that property. Um, 1974, the year I was born. N- April 1974. Tell us about Rusborough House and, and about Albert and Lady Bite and uh, wh- what, what they endured that time. Yes, so it's an unbelievably fascinating story. So the newspapers around the world, even in the United States, are presenting these stories about the Price Sisters because this hunger strike was becoming um, a major issue and they were being force-fed, which is just a horrific treatment. There's no question about that. Um, and what happens is in, in February in, in, uh, at the Kenwood House in England, somebody breaks in and steals a Vermeer called um, the guitar player. And that's stolen from the Kenwood house. And no one is ever captured for it. But soon ransom letters come in, anonymous letters saying that um, it will be returned if the Price sisters are moved. But the government vehemently is against doing that. And moreover, um, people aren't sure if those are for real. So the captors of that painting send a piece of the canvas from the side of the painting to the authorities, and it's it's for real. Weeks later, another theft occurs of a Vermeer, and that is uh, in April, when uh, a, a, the, the servants' quarters door at Rusborough House, uh, the bell rings, and a young fourteen-year-old child of a, of a worker there opens the door and finds a woman speaking in broken French that her car is disabled and she needs some help, and the young man opens the door fully to let her in, and then two men swoop in with guns and um, subdue him and subdue the other people in the house. But they're relatively gentle with the workers in the house, the servants. But when they get to a drawing room where um, uh, Sir uh, Bite and um, Lady Clementine Bate are listening to their phonograph, they're very rough with them. And then you start to see the nature of these people uh, they, they're yelling at them, calling them capitalist pigs. They strike Sir Alfred in the head with a gun and, and cut him, essentially hogtie him on the floor. They drag his wife. Um, you talk about two aristocrats. I mean, uh, couldn't be more wealthy. Diamond uh, heirs to a diamond fortune. They throw her in the dirt floor cellar and again call her a capitalist pig. And then something remarkable in the annals of crime happens. These 
thugs who are committing these, these rough crimes are directed by the woman and she tells them what to steal. They wouldn't know what to steal. They would have to guess, but she knew. And that woman was Rose Dugdale. And she knew art because her mother worked in a gallery, was an artist herself, and she was in charge. And maybe in 2020, that doesn't sound so shocking. 1974, it was impossible to believe. So how many paintings would the the Bites have had at that point? As you say, he was a, he. they were just, you know, mind-bogglingly rich. They had made a fortune on diamonds in South Africa and... Um, He'd obviously been a collector for years. Like, were there hundreds of paintings and, and pieces of art in this house? Uh, there were, oh, there are over a hundred when you consider the paintings and the, the, the antiques. Um, just an absolute treasure trove. But they only took paintings, and I shouldn't say only because they took 19. And they took a Vermeer, lady um, writing a letter with her maid. You know, these, those two paintings... Are, if you tried to sell them in the open market today, they would bring in hundreds of millions of dollars. There are only 36 known Vermeers. So your common crook doesn't know Vermeer, but Rose Dugdale knows Vermeer. Okay. And a lot of thieves might know Rubens, might. Um, they might know Vermeer, unlikely, but they wouldn't know Vandeveld, and she did. So, so these 19 paintings were picked out by a discriminating eye. And that was the eye of Rose Dugdale. And immediately the ransom for these paintings was to be, again, the Price sisters. But in really interesting turn, Dolores Price, through her father, made it clear to the media that she didn't want to be released on the backs of these paintings or on the backs of the people they were taken from. Yes, I noticed that. Like, why did they take that stance? Did they want their, the Price sisters, they wanted their sacrifice of the hunger strike to be what won them this return to Ireland or, or did they just not like her? No, you know, I, I, I'd be, I, it's hard to speak for the Price sisters, obviously, and I'm the last person who could, but my sense from reading all of the interviews and spending countless hours learning about them was that they were acting on principle. I think it's really hard to argue when you consider what they put themselves through in terms of the hunger strike and the force feeding. It's difficult for anyone on any side of the Irish Republican issue to argue that these were not people of principle. Um, A hunger strike is self-torture and the, the, the force feeding made it even worse. And I believe that they wanted to be transferred on the principle that they were prisoners of war not that somebody stole some items and forced somebody's hand, but that the British government should agree and um, admit that this was a war and these were soldiers. And I believe um, holding them in the best light, which I think is worthy, that that's why the Price sisters didn't want these paintings to be the reason they were sent uh, to Northern Ireland to serve their sentence. Um, Rose Dugdale again was suspected from the offset from the fact that these paintings had been carefully chosen uh, from the description of the woman, etc. And the fact she was on the run wanted for the uh, the would-be bombings in Straban along with Eddie Gallagher. So there's a hunt across the country for her and for these paintings. And I presume everybody is really concerned that these works of art are going to be damaged. Like... Can a thief 
if they don't store a painting um, in a particular way? Can they actually damage one of these masterpieces forever? Sure. Uh, You could definitely damage it if it's not stored and handled correctly. The atmosphere in which you store it depends on the medium of the painting. Usually older paintings um, are pretty robust. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of conservators who tell you that these older paintings, hundreds of years old, uh, have gone through their cycles. They've matured. Um, And also conservators are really good at fixing damaged paintings. Nevertheless, the worst thing possible is for untrained people to roughhouse with a delicate masterpiece, Um, especially things that are available to the public to see because it's really an egalitarian thing. A lot of people look at museums and masterpieces as uh, playgrounds for the rich, but they're not. The reason you have museums and such is so that everybody can enjoy these paintings, not just for an exclusive few. Mm. These paintings were in a private collection at that point and they would later be gifted to the Irish state, some of them, but... um, Dugdale was found fairly quickly. She had rented a house in West Cork and uh, where she was staying with Eddie Gallagher and the other two raiders. And uh, the paintings were retrieved. Were all of them found down there? All 19? They were all found. Some of them were in the trunk of her car. The rest were back in the small place that she had rented. Interesting, again, you can see that Rose is a, a sophisticated art thief, but not a sophisticated criminal. She assumed that by going out to this small place in West Cork that she would not be found. She didn't realize, maybe because of her upbringing, that people in a place like that notice when a, a person from out of, uh, outside of their community is lingering around. But um, it's an interesting thing the way she's caught, though, because you know the newspaper reports don't make mention of it. However, she's the only one arrested, and she's still the only one that was arrested and convicted for this theft. And what I find interesting about that is I think she knew that she would be the only one. The men didn't stick around. Eddie wasn't there when she was arrested. Only she was. And um, in in the early 1970s, revolutionaries really took a lesson from the Black Panthers in the United States who would use their court venue as an opportunity to, to have the bully pulpit and make their case and state their case against the powers that be. She did it in court in England after she robbed her parents. And she really used the court um, as a venue to speak to the government, to speak to the meat through the media. Um, and she famously said when asked how she pled, she said that she pleaded um, uh, um, incorruptibly guilty. Um, and that's really her. She was I think she was incorruptible. And that was before the special criminal court where later they uh, wouldn't have recognised the court or the authority of it because uh, it was a three-judge court set up for dealing with the the, the provost. Um, mm-hmm. She's jailed. Uh, in jail, she finds out, or maybe she knows before she goes in, but the authorities find out she's pregnant with Eddie Gallagher's child. And she eventually emerges and... and has continued to be certainly no longer involved in criminality since, but uh, she, she's certainly a supporter of the Republican movement and, and um, a bit of a, a martyr celebrated by the Shinners. But really going back to Rusborough House, she, she, that crime taught a couple of 
other people a few things about art theft. 1986, Martin Cahill, as you mentioned before, went in and tried to do the same thing. Um, did you think that her robbery of Rusborough alerted him to the fact that it was there and there was these artworks? Um, and did he have quite such a discerning eye when he, he robbed the place? Without a question, I think it was an absolute inspiration. I think he attempted to steal essentially the same painting she did. He stole somewhere around the same number. Um, the Vermeer was taken again. Interestingly, you know, I'm taken by a point. This is a weird way to sort of prove that point. But when the Rustboro house was robbed by Dugdale and the police were responding, they got the call. One of the detectives got the call that um, millions of dollars worth of paintings were stolen from the Rustboro house. And the detective's response was, there, aren't, there isn't a painting worth a million dollars in the whole of Ireland. Um, just people didn't really understand the value of the things there. She woke them up to this, you know, and there's no doubt that these headlines about the value of these paintings definitely played a role in Cahill uh, later using an ingenious plan to break in. It was very ingenious. Um, uh, it was inspired by her crime. I have no doubt about it. He went down and visited, didn't he, beforehand and, and went around and looked at the paintings. Was that correct? He did. And then the plan was is really brilliant. Um, the guy was a brilliant thief. And they went and they set off the alarms to the house but didn't break in. So that way the police would come, find that there was nothing wrong. And then when the alarms would go off a second time, would think the alarm's just acting up. And that's what happened. And they were allowed to rob the place that way. But... um Cahill is in, a, in, in a, an exclusive class in terms of ingenuity. From memory, didn't he store or was supposed to have, there was so many rumours about those paintings and it's always difficult to, you know, separate fact from fiction when it comes to the criminal underworld. But did he store some of those paintings in a graveyard or bury them in the Dublin mountains or? You're close. Well, the, so the first Vermeer that was stolen was found in a graveyard. Um, but when Cahill stole from the Rossborough house, I think that was 86, he buried a number of them in the forest. And um, two are still missing. Nobody knows where they are. Um, I did actually get a call from a, a, a kind person in Ireland who didn't identify himself, but said he saw Cahill burying paintings in the woods and thought maybe they were mine from the Gardner Museum. But when he told me the timeline, it was much closer. It was before my theft, and it was much closer to the Rustborough House theft. So perhaps uh, that's where those two uh, remain. And would they disintegrate eventually? Yeah, that would be a bad situation. I mean, putting them in the dirt, if they're not sealed in a good way, that would even just um, maybe pest infestation, um, eating away at the canvas and stuff and such, that would be tragic. Sure would, if, if insects... At a, you know, a, a painting of such value. Um, so what happens? And we spoke earlier, you, you mentioned that there have been two significant robberies in the Netherlands of artwork since last March, in the, in the last couple of months. What happens with these paintings? How the hell do you get rid of them? How do you sell them? If they're so famous, um, obviously you can take them and look for ransom, etc. But that has kind of not really been something of modern times, um, ransom-seeking. Um, who, what do you do with these, with these paintings? I mean, surely they've been catalogued 
who owns them, where they are. So are there buyers out there who will actually, you know, spend money to have these stolen works of art hanging in a basement so they can just see them for their own pleasure? Or what happens with them? You know, it's a great question. And Fee, you know, Rose is an outlier again because she stole her paintings for a political motive. Excuse me. So she wasn't looking to monetize them. In the vast majority of these masterpiece heists, people are looking to monetize them. They think if I steal this, I can sell it on the black market. But no such black market exists for sorts of paintings. They're just simply too valuable. So if you steal a painting worth $30 million, you're not going to find a buyer who's going to give you 10% of that because who's going to buy something that highly recognizable? They can never show anyone, give you $3 million for it and only get into trouble for it. So it just doesn't happen. So, you know, there's a a former FBI agent in the United States named Robert Whitman who put it really well to me years ago. And he said that art in art theft is not stealing the stuff, it's selling it because there are no buyers for them. So what really happens is these thieves in the vast majority of cases wake up the next day to find out these things are so recognizable, nobody wants them, they're too hot. And they wind up hiding them and trying to find a creative way to use them. And occasionally, occasionally they will be returned and the press doesn't know how, but that's typically because there's some bargain made, you know, uh, for a lower sentence or, you know, a criminal gets in trouble six months later selling cocaine and they trade the paintings to get out of trouble. Or they use them as collateral in the drug trade. You know, I have this, it's a bona fide, I have this much money worth of art. So if I don't come up with the money, you know, I'm good for it. Um, uh, or it's used for money laundering, as you mentioned to me earlier today. Uh, so you have to get creative when you steal these masterpieces because there's no doctor, there's no Doctor Evil out there, who or Doctor No, who's got an underground lair with these types of paintings hanging on his wall uh, for only him to enjoy. It just doesn't happen. Well, maybe there is because you know there's still some of them that just never show up, isn't there? Including what you described as your own. Tell me about your own robbery. So uh, 30 years ago, two thieves disguised as police officers came to the Gardner Museum here in Boston overnight, and they talked their way into the building. And once they were in, they uh, subdued the two guards who were on duty, uh, tied them up in the basement with handcuffs, and they went upstairs and they stole 13 pieces of art, including, again, a Vermeer uh, and three Rembrandts, a Manet, Flink, Degas, and the paintings um, are worth well over half a billion dollars. So it was the biggest heist of any type of property in the history of mankind. No way the thieves could have anticipated that the stuff would be that valuable. And as a result, it's never shown up. So I do believe that if some evil billionaire somewhere had them on his wall, over 30 years, someone would have told us because we have a $10 million reward for information that leads to the return of these paintings. So you don't have to give them to me. You just have to tell me how I can get them. Well, the evil billionaire would have surely married a woman who would have got sick of him. And then she would have phoned you for her get out of jail, 10 million. You're exactly right, Nicola. You you know, in in reality, these older cases like mine are solved because ex-wives become ex-wives and girlfriends become ex-girlfriends and children become estranged and the bad guys aren't as scary. So eventually it's someone like that who does talk. Now, your own theft there, which has been 
subject of much speculation over the decades and has probably been something that has engulfed your own life in the hunt for them. Um, it also has brought you to Ireland to an extent. And um, there was a documentary shown recently on the BBC and a story actually I wrote about last year, um, Martin Foley, the same uh, Rusborough House wannabe, had been dealing with a, an art investigator called Charlie Hill, uh, um, an English former Scotland Yard detective turned uh, art detective. And he had told him a story that uh, some of your paintings were here in Ireland and that they had been sent um, by Whitey Bulger over here and that the IRA had kind of forgotten about them and they were in a house and he was going to go find them. And he was going to try and claim some of this reward. Um, when I wrote about the story, I was very sceptical. Certainly my sources had had told me to be very sceptical about those claims because Foley has a reputation of being a fraudster. Um, I don't know whether you agree with me on that. I know the BBC ran a documentary um, recently and clearly they have latched on to this theory. What, what, what would be your thoughts on it? I'm uh, in accord with you entirely. I would say that, um, number one, I was disappointed that the documentary went to Ireland. Um, I, in the FBI, made it very clear to them that there has never, and I mean never, been one iota of evidence pointing to the IRA or anyone in Ireland associated with our crime. Now, because our painting's been missing so long, you can't rule anybody out. But if you ask me to make a list of possibilities, any connection to Ireland at all would be at the very bottom. And I say to people all the time, I'm more than happy to be proven wrong. You know, if two people came off Aer Lingus today and knocked at my door and gave me my paintings back, I'd happily tell the world I was wrong. But I, I don't believe I am simply because, you know, there's something in that documentary that struck me. I, actually, I didn't see the documentary, but an article in The Guardian, I think it was, where they said, uh, they, one of the comments was, all signs point to Ireland. And I want to make it very clear to you and anyone listening today that the truth is zero signs point to Ireland. Zero. Not one. Not one thing points to Whitey Bulger. In fact, if there's one thing we're comfortable saying in terms of excluding people, it's excluding Whitey Bulger. Um, it's just such a amateurish um, supposition uh, that Whitey Bulger was involved. People who say that don't know much about Bulger or his gang. For the first part, he wasn't a thief. Thievery wasn't something he did. He was an extortionist, a murderer, and a drug dealer, uh, and a rat for the, uh, or a grass for the FBI. But he wasn't a thief. And um, secondly, we know that every member of his gang, everyone except one guy, has turned state's evidence on him and admitted complicity to countless murders. It is hard for me to believe that they would admit to strangling a young woman and burying her in a basement, but wouldn't say where a Degas sketch is. It's absurd. Um, Bulger was apprehended and had every opportunity to tell us where the paintings were to save his girlfriend from going to prison. He knows nothing about it. We know from his gang that he tried to find them after they were stolen was unsuccessful and moved on. 
Bulger had nothing to do with it. Even if he did, the idea that he would have, that the IRA would have even trusted him at that time is ludicrous because not long before the theft, a ship, a shipment of arms from Boston was sent to Ireland and uh, someone here who was a grass as well um, uh, snitched and that shipment was intercepted. The IRA uh, were, leadership are not fools and they're not ones to, I think you guys can attest this way better than I can, not ones to uh, brush off the fact that there is a rat involved um, in an operation. So that's, I'm sorry I went on so long, but the idea that these paintings are in Ireland because of Whitey Bulger and frankly, Martin Foley, a, uh, my favorite crime writer in Ireland, you printed an article in the Sunday World, which paraphrased me beautifully saying, put up or shut up. And nothing was put up. The last thing I'll say is I'm amused by the idea that the press was reporting that Martin Foley disappeared as the press was closing in on him. He didn't disappear. He just didn't return phone calls. Right? There's a big difference. You know, it, it, they, they tried to make it dramatic, but he just wasn't returning a phone call. He didn't disappear. I wouldn't have thought uh, Foley was somebody anyway if he actually had proper information that he, he would have dismissed that 10 million reward that you have for, for the paintings. I mean, that alone. And also, I have to say, my information is that the house where the artwork was supposedly hidden and forgotten has been extensively renovated and uh, there's absolutely no way there's anything behind the walls. Listen, it was a good story. Unfortunately, it's it's more fiction than than fact. But tell me, who did steal your art? We We are pretty confident we know who the gang was behind the theft here in Boston. They were local guys. I should point out that the, the two guards who were subdued by the thieves made it clear that the guards had local accents. They spoke not like Americans, but Bostonians. Um, we have a world's worth of evidence that the painting stayed here in Boston, um, at least at the, at the beginning. I don't know where they are today, or I would, you know, history tells you that they stay pretty close to where they're stolen. But we have, we have uh, every reason to believe that the thieves were local. Now, does that mean if someone called today with a credible lead about Ireland or England or Paraguay, we would follow it. We follow every single lead. But we have lots of information that we can't share with the public that points to the paintings having been stole by a specific group of individuals here in Boston. And do you think the paintings are still intact and are still out there, that they will be found? I do. Um, I, the first book I ever wrote was a book called Stealing Rembrandts, and it examined what what happens to masterpieces using the example of Rembrandt paintings because they're so commonly stolen. And the last time Rembrandt paintings were destroyed was in the 1930s in the United States. Um, these paintings are, are uh, pretty easy. I shouldn't say easy. They're very apt to be repaired if there's any sorts of damage. They're too easy to hide and too valuable to destroy. So we believe that they're hidden somewhere um, and it's our job to go find them. But Finding hidden, hidden objects are much harder than finding hidden people. Because as I always say, paintings don't have to go to the pharmacy to get prescription drugs or go to the doctor or get their hair, hair cut or get food. So it's a, it's a huge challenge to find stolen paintings. Mm, and that's what makes them such good currency and crime as well, isn't it? They can be transported easily and they can be hidden as something 
non-valuable or, you know, even hung on a wall. And it would take a discerning eye to know a lot of them. Um, I have this kind of romantic vision about art theft, I have to be honest. And um, if I could choose a crime to get involved in, it might be it. I like the idea of being winched into a a museum and, you know, that sort of old movie thing about uh, running away with some... um, priceless artwork under my arm or a big diamond or something. But um, like today's art thieves, are they political in the same way as Rose Dugdale was? Have we seen, have we seen anything like that in recent times, even with ISIS and other, other movements? Have they, have they used art or can they just no longer get at it? Is security so good now? Well, ISIS is said to have done things with the antiquities, which is slightly different. You know, things from archaeological digs or the sorts of things that can be uh, trafficked a little more easily. But in terms of what Rose did, she is really an outlier. The idea that someone, in every respect, this is why I wrote the book, someone of her upbringing, someone of her motivation, someone of her gender, someone of her um, discriminating eye, and someone with the motive that she had is singular. Uh, I I can't think of a good example of someone else doing what she did for a political purpose like like hers. I'm sure there's one or two, but I'm talking about masterpieces here also. You know, there's a lot of art theft. There's a lot of, most art is stolen from people's homes. And it's the sorts of things you wouldn't recognize the art or the artist, but it's valuable. You know, art has an intrinsic valuable and some of it's worth thousands, right? But we're talking about paintings worth many millions of dollars. And um, it's, it just can't be overstated what she did. And, you know, when I approached the book and her story, I was fascinated by the Rossboro House because that's what I do for a living is look for stolen art and try to protect it. Protect it from people like you who want to steal art now. But um, when I got further into her story, you know, Think about, you mentioned that she had her son, Rory, in prison. Well, she had him in December after she was incarcerated. And she knew she was pregnant because she snuck out a thing of urine to her attorney. And she was, uh, she conceived Rory so soon after she left Walter and, and met Eddie in Ireland. And then she also went on a hunger strike. And then Eddie Gallagher decided he needed to get her out of prison. And he took a harema, um uh, hostage for the longest hostage situation in Irish history. So it's these first that keep happening. And then even after that, the Irish government lets the two of these, these two prisoners, Eddie and Rose, get married in prison. And it's just almost out of Hollywood. But uh, her life is that incredible. It's certainly full of passion all the way, isn't it? Without a doubt. Listen, it's a, a fantastic book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. Um, I've read it. I would suggest anybody who hasn't goes out and gets it because the story of Rose Dugdale is fascinating. And I suspect we might be seeing it on the big screen too. That's the hope. I mean, if there's ever a life that is suited for an, um, a limited series on Netflix or, or some streaming service, it's Rose Dugdale. She's far more fascinating. I'm watching The Queen's Gambit now. Have you seen this on Netflix? I'm about to start. You're going to like it, but you'll watch it. And I'm jaded and, and I'm biased, of course, but you watch it saying, 
my God, Rose is far more fascinating than this chess player. But you'll enjoy it anyway. It's very good. Anthony, I actually found Rose Dugdale around 2013 or 2014 and she was living in a, a suburb of Dublin um, in an ordinary house. And uh, she didn't want to talk to me. I don't think she wanted to talk to you either. She doesn't. She chooses her her friends, I think, maybe wisely <laughs> in the case of me. But um, <laughs> she, uh, you know, she's living still an incredibly ordinary life. She never went back to the money or went back to the luxuries she was born with. So from that point of view, I think she's she's someone to be admired as well. But uh, I agree with you. I agree. If I could just say she, when during, when she was active and she was on the run in Ireland, um, some people were skeptical of her because of her background, a professor, Oxford PhD from Great Wealth in Britain. But, uh, and her family never disowned her. She got all of her inheritance and everything else. But at this stage in the game, and for the last number of years, people in Ireland, I think, have grown to grown to some affection for her because she has proven that she was the real deal. This was not a flight of fancy for some rich girl. She's lived the life now into her twilight years. Um, an amazing thing with her is now she she was on social media pretty actively up until a few years ago, and her her profile photo on Facebook and Twitter is this Vermeer painting she stole, and now. She's accepted by the IRA in a way she wasn't back then. Um, they they disavowed her, but now you see photos of her with Jerry Adams, um, and she does education for Sinn Fein. I don't know how active she is anymore, but um, I'll 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 give you this one last anecdote. When the book came out and the advertisements started on social media, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of Irish people, would comment comment under the ad saying that my book was a travesty and it's full of lies and she was a wonderful woman. And I keep saying, you need to read the book. This is not an attack on her. So when you opened our conversation with, I have affection for her, I hope that people give the book a chance in Ireland, those who support Rose, and they'll see this is not an attack piece and this is not a smear in any way. Okay, Anthony, thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. sundayworld.com this is crime world produced by ian mullaney available online and on all podcast platforms if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review and if you want to get in touch check out our facebook page crime world with nicola talent like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.